Well, we are taking a time out tonight from Exodus. Despite Kathy's prayer that we would be in Exodus. See the connections I You know, I was thinking about Hartwell, uh, 82 years old, uh, pastored in the late 50s, 60s. 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, and I was thinking this week about the changes he has seen in his years in the ministry. I'd say the same thing about Dr. Willis, my, 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 the changes they have seen in this culture since they first went into the ministry. Uh, so anyway, I want us to look at, look at Elijah tonight out of 1 Kings 18. Rise up, O men of God. And using men generically, of course, all of us. Rise up, O men of God. When we think of how Elijah was with his changing culture. And uh, we'll talk about what brought on a lot of changes in his culture with Jezebel and Ahab and like I say I was thinking about Dr. Willis and Hartwell and their time in the ministry and just cataclysmic changes that they have witnessed. Many of you in here tonight that you've witnessed and I couldn't help but think about Elijah and how Elijah must have felt in his climate back in his day. Feeling outnumbered. Do you ever feel outnumbered today? You ever feel outnumbered as Christians? I'm sure that's, well, we know that's how Elijah felt. Because at one point he says, I'm the only one left. And what did the Lord tell him? No, uh, I've reserved 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. But pick up reading with me in verse 1 of chapter 18 of 1 Kings. Rise up, O men of God. Later on in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. Now, why had rain been withheld? Had prayed. And, and why had God brought the drought? Why had God brought drought in the land? Do you remember? Yes, because Elijah had prayed, but what had even set up that scenario? The judgment of God on the land. Because they had turned to Baalism. And they had rejected Yahweh. So God had not sent rain. In three years is judgment as a wake-up call to them. Folks, I tell you what, God can bring a nation to its knees if he so chooses, can he? So Elijah went, verse 2 says, Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria, so Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. Once when Jezebel had tried to kill all the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden 100 of them in two caves. He put 50 prophets in each cave and supplied them with food and water. 
Ahab said to Obadiah, we must check every spring and valley in the land to see if we can find enough grass to save at least some of my horses and mules. So they divided the land between them. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. As Obadiah was walking along, he suddenly saw Elijah coming toward him. Obadiah recognized him at once and bowed low to the ground before him. Is it really you, my lord Elijah, he asked. Yes, it is, Elijah replied. Now go and tell your master, Elijah is here. Oh, sir, Obadiah protested. What harm have I done to you that you are sending me to my death at the hands of Ahab? For I swear by the Lord your God that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time he was told, Elijah isn't here, King Ahab forced the king of that nation to swear the truth of his claim. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here. But as soon as I leave you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you away to who knows where. When Ahab comes and cannot find you, he will kill me. Yet I have been a true servant of the Lord all my life. Has no one told you, my Lord, about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophets? I hid a hundred of them in two caves and supplied them with food and water. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here. Sir, if I do that, Ahab will certainly kill me. But Elijah said, I swear by the Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who were supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of the Lord your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. 
Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said. And the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all. And Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. Folks, I mentioned Hartwell and and, uh, Dr. Willis. This was also, if you know anything about Dave Seeger. This was one of Dave Seeger's favorite stories to tell in Awana. Boy, he could he could really tell this story right. He had the kids eating out of his hand as he told it. Folks, as Christians, we know that we are to be examples to the world. But in order to do that, What are we going to have to be? We're going to have to be salt and light. We're going to have to be pilgrims, sojourners. We can't blend into the world and be like the world if we're going to be a witness to the world. We can't compromise with the world. As J.B. Phillips says in Romans 12 too, we can't allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. We have to be different. Now we've been studying through Genesis and now 
Exodus how God raises up men and women to be his servants. We've seen how God's raised up men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Now we've been studying about Moses. And how these men of God rose up and stood tall in the midst of their culture. And they didn't compromise. Moses, we're told, was even willing to be counted with his people and suffer rather than to enjoy all the pleasures of Egypt. We fast forward and come to the Protestant Reformation. We see how men of God rose up during that time as well. Martin Luther and Zwingli and John Calvin and others. And you remember what was kind of the icing on the cake, right? The sale of indulgences. They were building St. Peter's in Rome and needed cash, the Catholic Church. And so the Pope had sent this gentleman out who was an expert fundraiser. And he came up with this plan to sell indulgences that you could buy your loved ones out of purgatory. Now, actually, there's no doctrine of purgatory in the Bible. But they'd come up with that, which comes from some of the non-canonical books that Protestants don't have in their copy of the Scripture, but Roman Catholics do. And... uh, you could, you could buy indulgences and shorten the length of time that your loved one has to suffer in purgatory because they said that in purgatory you've got to finish paying off your sin. What Jesus did apparently wasn't enough. You have to finish paying off your sin debt in purgatory. And so by buying indulgences, you could shorten the time 1,902,202 years and 270 days. That's how much you could shorten your loved one's time in purgatory. And what was the saying? As soon as the coin and the coffer rings... The soul from purgatory springs. So it's men like Martin Luther that rose up against that practice. The reformers, they, they paid great personal cost. So we see all through the Bible, all through church history, God's raised up people and they've had to pay great personal cost. But folks, because they've done that, you and I have had a chance to have a Bible in our hands and to know the gospel, right? The challenge is, will we follow suit? Will we rise up? Now, we see in 1 Kings 18 that as you're going into 1 Kings 18, the spiritual climate in Israel is very, very 
low. Why is it very low? What's happened? Idol worship. Ahab and Jezebel. And what have they brought into the land? Baal worship. Baal worship. 1 Kings 16 says, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Think about that. More than all who were before him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And Ahab had married Jezebel. She was the daughter of Ethbaal. The Jewish historian Josephus refers to Ethbaal as a king priest who ruled over Tyre and Sidon for 32 years. And so here's a Jewish king marrying a girl whose religious background is different from his. Something that was not supposed to be done in Israel. But Ahab had disobeyed the Lord and done it anyway. Well, what do they systematically begin doing? They try to erase worship of the true and the living God off of the landscape of Israel. And again, I think of what Hartwell and Dr. Willis and people of their generation have seen happen in America, whether it's politicians or leaders in society, how since the 50s, I mean, I I know it started before then, but how people have been trying to wash away Christianity out of the land, erase the influence of Christianity out of American culture. Think of all the battles some of you have seen being waged over the past 50 or 60 years of your life and how Christianity has fallen out of favor more and more and more, and there are those voices out there who are trying to erase away any influence of the church in this current generation. We've seen that slide. Well, that's what Jezebel and Ahab are doing in Israel. They're trying to erase away Worship of the true and living God and replace it with idolatry. And so what do they do? They begin tearing down the altars to Jehovah God and building instead altars to Baal. Probably Ahab was trying to be a bit politically correct and maybe even blend the two together. Worship of Yahweh with worship of Baal. Sounds like today too, doesn't it? How people try to blend things together in political correctness. Ahab built a temple honoring Baal in in the northern kingdom of Samaria just as Solomon had built a temple in Jerusalem. 
Now, essentially what Ahab does is make Baalism the official state religion of the northern kingdom. Unbelievable to think of. How in the world has something like this been allowed to happen? And yet it has. Think today about how nations slide and start going downhill. Judgment had fallen on the land because of sin. In chapter 17 of 1 Kings, we're told about that. The judgment of God. And God spoke to Elijah to to go and tell Ahab that he was going to withhold rain from the land. So you think about where they have come as a nation. Here they were under Joshua when they'd entered the promised land. And Moses and Joshua have got the people to repeat the terms of the covenant. And the people are like, yeah, we're all in. And at the end of the book of Joshua, what did Joshua say? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose who you will follow. And what did the people say? We'll serve God. And now look at them. How far they have slipped away from that. Now, on top of that, just that slide, Jezebel has been doing something else. What's she been doing? She's been killing the Lord's prophets. Probably she's doing this out of worship of Baal. She thinks by by killing the prophets to Baal's rival, she'll bring the blessings of Baal upon the land. Well, what Jezebel doesn't understand, she's serving a false god. And so Elijah comes on the scene as a man of God. He rises up against what he sees. Now, folks, what he says is every bit as powerful for the church today. If you're taking notes tonight, I want you to write down that convictions have to be settled. Look at verse 21 again. In verse 21, what does he say? How much longer will you waver, halting or hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. These people were trying to live with two separate world views. Like a lot of people today. On the one hand, you had Baalism and everything it taught. On the other hand, you had their Old Testament faith and everything it taught. And so they're faced with a choice. They had to decide what convictions they were going to follow. And amazingly, they didn't want to do this. When he tells them this, what do they do? They just kind of stand there silent. They won't even make up their minds. They just stand there without saying a word. They were trying to do the impossible by living out two different opposing worldviews. They wanted the best of both worlds. And what do people do today? They begin doing the same, blending into culture and compromising their faith. 
Do you know that George Barna in polls he has taken of the evangelical church today, he has discovered that only 9% of professing Christians say that they live according to a biblical Christian worldview. 9% of the professing Christians say they live by a biblical worldview. Do you know he found that only 51% of conservative evangelical pastors say that they live by a biblical world view? It's not just that. I mean, look in the Bible Belt, the inconsistencies too, you know? It's all over. We're in a 5149 culture. Now, what do you mean by? Well, you just look at any election. Here you just talk about 51% of pastors. It's right. a 5149 culture. Yeah. And it, not much to tip it. And what's so sad about this is Christianity is a revelatory faith. What do I mean by that? We have God's revelation. In, In other words, what I'm saying is it's not supposed to be up for grabs with just what we think we want to do, what we feel like doing. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live by the Word. Christianity is based on God's revelation. And God, God doesn't stutter. And you know, in Deuteronomy, Moses said, this word's easy to understand. You don't have to go up to heaven to try to understand it. That's right. It. It's in your minds and in your hands today yep. for you to understand. Yep. You know, people say, oh, the Bible's too complicated. It isn't. No. no. If you just dig in and start reading, start studying it. But again, when, when you think about 9%, and then 51%, 9% of lay people, 51% of even pastors. And, and how it shouldn't be because, again, this is what we're supposed to believe. And this is spo- what we're supposed to guide our lives by. And even as Southern Baptists, what do we say in our doctrinal statement? That in here we have everything, God's word is inerrant in all matters pertaining to what? Faith and practice. Everything about our faith, everything about our lifestyle is supposed to be governed by this. And yet we're not doing it. Sad. We even begin going along with those who don't know God and we allow them to try to set the agenda. We'll even try to let unbelievers set the agenda in the church. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Come out from among them and be ye separate. We blend in. We don't know the scripture. We offer excuses for our lack of commitment. So many people are apparently pretending, right? Kind of think about the guy that owned the circus and his gorilla died. He was in trouble. He had a big week coming up and a 
major metropolitan area, and the gorilla was, the gorilla would, you know, it was a leading attraction. So he got a gorilla suit, very real looking one, dressed the man in it, and the man would jump at the kids in out of the behind the bars and growl at them and snarl and scare them to death. Man, it was a money maker. But this guy one time on break, he stepped through a door, didn't realize he was stepping into the lion's cage. He turned around and there was a lion. He's in his ape suit. He, and the lion's coming to attack him. And he began screaming and yelling, get me out of here. And all of a sudden, the lion says, shut up, you fool. You'll get us both fired. <laughs> Christians are pretty good at pretending, aren't we? We're pretty good at pretending too. We put on and off our Christianity like a costume. We, we, we want Christ, but we want the world too and all that the world has to offer. And we try to live in some kind of zone between the two and we compromise. But Folks, we've got to settle our convictions and we've got to live by them. We've got to live by them. If we don't, we won't make any kind of impact whatsoever. And that's what their problem was. They had lost sight of the convictions they were supposed to have. And Elijah's trying to call them back to living a life of convictions. Well, secondly, I want you to see culture must be confronted with God's truth. Look at what he says in verses 22 to 24. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar. But without setting fire to it, I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood, he's the true God. Elijah's going to later on say in verse 36 that all of this was not his own idea. He says, God, I've done everything at your word. What a, we're, we, we can know that what Elijah is doing here with this test was, was not his idea. God's told him to lead the people to do this. And so here he proposes this test. And let's remember where they are. They're at Mount Carmel or Mount Carmel as they would say. Now what's significant about that? It was kind of the home turf advantage is how it would have been viewed for Baalism. It, it, was, it was one of the main places for Baalism. It was a high place and it was over by the sea. 
It was viewed commonly in that culture as a favorite place of Baal. Now, here's where we need to understand something about Baalism a little more to see the significance of this. Baal was the storm god of the Canaanites. You remember the Canaanites? In one way or another, Israel was supposed to have run the Canaanites out of the land when they first entered into the promised land. They were supposed to run them out or kill them. If they couldn't run them out, they were supposed to kill all the Canaanites. And you might say, how cruel. But let's remember about what God had said concerning the Canaanites. Remember what he said to Abraham? Your people, Abraham, are going to be down in Egypt for more than 400 years because he was giving the Canaanites over 400 years to repent and come to him. And so they had had over 400 years to do that. And they had not done it. And so God was completely just in ordering their destruction. Because God said, if you allow them to stay, they are going to poison you. You're going to end up compromised. You're going to end up giving your sons to their daughters and your daughters to their sons and there's going to be all kinds of compromise in the land and then I'm going to judge you because... You're not going to obey me. And that's exactly what had happened. They had left the Canaanites there. And they had intermarried with them. And they had adopted many of the ways of the Canaanites. And they had even adopted much of the aspects of Canaanite religion and worship. So the Canaanites had indeed become poison to the Israelites. Baalism seemed reasonable enough to ancient people who had rejected the true and the living God. You see, they reasoned that there must be a God who brings the storms, who brings the rain. There must be somebody or something up there that brings this fertility to the earth. And so they had concluded it was Baal. They had created an idol. He was pictured as riding the back of a bull with the clouds as his chariot and lightning as his sword. And his female counterpart was Asherah. And she was pictured as a totem pole, a very sensual totem pole. And the thought was, as Baal and Asherah engage in sexual practice in the heavens, the result of that is fertility on the earth. And so they would go to the high places because they thought, you got to get up close to him, you know, build altars at the high places. And then they would have prostitutes. And the people would engage 
in sexual practice with the prostitutes of Baal. Because their thought was, Baal and Ashtoreth will see the people engaging in sexual practice. They will in turn engage in sexual practice. And then fertility will come to the earth. It was a sex cult. A, a sex cult based on fertility. Bringing fertility to the land. And what's amazing by that is here's the descendants of Abraham and they have begun buying into all this junk. I mean, this is pure paganism. What's the church done today? Bought into a lot of pagan practices. Frog in the kettle. What's frog in the kettle? You throw a frog in boiling water, what's it do? Jumps out. Throw it in water and slowly turn up the heat. Lukewarm first and then warmer and warmer. What happens? You can boil a frog to death. That's what the church is doing today in many ways in our culture. Some in the church think they can endorse sin. Some think they can participate in it. Shake hands with it. Join arms with it. And still be a follower of Jesus Christ. We think we can have it both ways. Elijah confronted his culture. We need Elijah's today. He called them to a challenge. Let's see which God answers. Because folks, we know what? False gods can't answer. Because false gods can't see. And false gods can't hear. So will Baal answer? Or will the true and the living God answer? Folks, don't we still build altars and idols today. We're just more sophisticated about it, aren't we? We have idols of pleasure and materialism and we offer our lives to false gods hoping they'll give us life and make us feel good and give us some happiness and peace. But any happiness in the world is only temporary. It's like trying to grab water in the palm of your hand and hold on to it. Just slips right through fingers, doesn't it? These gods we create, they take, they don't give. They suck the real life right out of us. So the Word of God confronts us today and asks us, where have your gods taken you? Are they giving you what you thought they would give you? you? Are you really better off? Or is your life a drought? Is it a wasteland? Is it bankrupt? Because again, false gods cannot save. And so here Elijah challenges them and the prophets of Baal start dancing around and doing everything they're doing and even cutting themselves and calling out and Elijah just, I mean, he gets to a point, he just sits back and starts laughing at them, doesn't he? 
Yell louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's taking a potty break. Maybe he's on vacation. He's on a trip. (coughs) Wake him up. I mean, Elijah's just, he's, he's poking fun at how absurd they've become, right? But then what's Elijah do? He repairs the altars that Jezebel and Ahab have had torn down. They've torn down the Lord's altars and they've built altars to Baal. And so Elijah rebuilds one of those and then look at what he does. He calls on his God. Only after he's had these big containers of water Pouring on, poured over the altar and the sacrifice. Because after all, fire and water don't mix, right? So, I mean, he pours water on to the point that water is standing all around and in the trough, and, and God answers by fire. Burns up the sacrifice, burns up the water. Then what happens? The people see. And they kill the prophets of Baal. I want you to notice a couple of things here. The fire of God fell for a man who was willing to separate himself from the crowd and follow God even if nobody else did. If I got to stand by myself, Elijah said essentially, I'm going to take my stand for God. And that's essentially what he did here. He's standing by himself. The fire of God fell for a man willing to take God at his word. Remember again, he says he did all of this at God's instruction. So God's told him to do this. Here he is having the water dumped on it. So Elijah's (laughs) believing God. God said do this and he's going to answer by fire. He's going to do it. He took God at his word. The fire of God fell for a man who was unwilling to compromise his faith. Well, in verse 40, let's talk about consequences. We see that the false prophets were destroyed. They did all this in response to what the book of Deuteronomy told them to do. That false prophets were to be put to death. Now, obviously, nothing like that happens today. But nonetheless, people have to face consequences. Bad choices cost people today dearly. When we think of our culture today, does anybody anywhere think of waking up and saying God was right? We have been sowing to the wind and reaping the whirlwind. As a culture, we've departed from the truth of God's word and look at where it's gotten us. Our nation may never recover 
from some of the junk that we've gotten involved with today. Consequences. What's Galatians 6 tell us? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, this will he also reap. Sin has consequences. And think of the future consequence one day. Great white throne judgment. Those whose names were not found written in the Lamb's book of life were what? Thrown into the lake of fire. Consequences. On the positive side... There was rain in the land again. God brought the drought to an end. Positive consequences for Elijah and the people of God. For God's remnant. I want you to see tonight that Elijah was a man of God who rose up. Was it popular? No. But was it needed? Yes. I want you to understand the need for men and women of God like this exists today. Every bit as much in the church because we see a disregard for God and God's word all around us today. We see compromise all around us today. We need Elijah's. And yes, I want you to also understand it may mean standing alone. You may not have anybody in your family even that stands with you. You may think about your, your family members and your friends. And you may have very little support for your faith. It can take a willingness to be in the minority with nobody standing with you. But as the old cliche says, one plus God equals what? A majority. Still true today yet. Be counted. Live your faith. Live out your convictions. Base your convictions on God's word and live them out. Don't be like those Jesus said. May may we never be like those Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount who stand before him one day and say, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Only God can win this war, this cultural battle that we're involved in today. Only only God can do it. Only God could have done for Elijah what God did here. And God acted, and God intervened, and God helped Elijah. Only God can win this battle that we're in today. And eventually, one way or another, God will. Which side will you be on?
Jim. Looking at today, I think some of the, uh, we may not have all of this going on like a monster movie here. Uh, what we're looking at though is how about the pastors that go with the prosperity gospel? Sure. They're probably, they represent me probably the closest thing to what we're studying tonight. I mean, we're looking at so and so down there in Houston, Texas, and he's, you know, got 13,000 people seated there, and they're all reciting that thing. He has them say, well, they hold their Bibles in the air and everything else. But how much a genuine message ever gets through in that? Watch enough of those programs to sit there and critique it, and it's the same old, same old all the time. But there is hope. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but just recently, the English uh, pastor, Benny Hinn, mm -hmm. has had a big change of heart. I read something about that. I didn't yeah, read the whole article. Oh, he's been in that prosperity gospel and everything else. I mean, uh, but when I read the statement he made, this guy has got it. Hmm. Let's hope so. And he'll quit leading people astray. I mean, these are huge stumbling blocks, and boy, are they going to sure. be in a world of hurt when it comes to that time to step out into eternity and you meet God face to face. There is going to be one of those that really is going to feel it when he says, but, but think, just think of the ways, I mean, the long checklist we could go down, how far many in the modern church today have compromised what we learn in here. Whether it has to do with life, because we're in a cultural culture of death now, life, marriage, gender issues, all of these issues, you think of how the church today, some churches and some denominations are compromising. Are we, are we going to get, are we willing to take our convictions from God's word and stand on them? Even if nobody stands with us, are we willing to do that? I hope we'll be willing. There's churches that still allow the Boy Scouts to meet in their, their, in, in their buildings. They're allowing them to come in and do, um, take part in worship services. And people, I have had someone tell me this week, oh, there's nothing wrong with Boy Scouts. Yes, they have become enculturated in the homosexual movement, mm -hmm. in the leaders, and in the ones that they bring in. And then they're upset because people said, well, it's all these people filing these sexual abuse charges. Well, duh, what do they think it goes back to? Sure. They've got the leaders who, who are molesting the kids. Yeah. The young people who have been so converted in their mind, or I think we may have used the wrong word, converted, um, and they're twisted in their minds that they're <clears throat> trying to bring more kids into it. And I've got a friend. Their son is in Charlotte, and he is actually working to bring more youth into the homosexual lifestyle.
livestock. Mm -hmm. And then the other brother, they're putting pictures of their, their son out there in a Boy Scout uniform. I mean, and, and they're, they're, they're supposed to be the greatest, godliest people on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. But they have, they have not confronted the sin that's rampant. They have just, they just ignored it. It's, it's, you know, Pastor Scott, the bottom line is be real. Sure. Be real. Sure. I, as you leave tonight, again, think, think about what some of you in here have seen happen in this culture over the past 50 or 60 years and the slide that we have seen. And giving up biblical convictions a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. It's kind of like a little dripping faucet, isn't it? We've gradually given up a little bit more ground. And we're not talking about hating anybody. We love the sinner, hate the sin. But whatever it is, we, these little compromises we've done along the way in society. And think of the impact it's had on the church today. And are you going to be willing to say, God, by your grace and with your wisdom and strength, I'm going to know this book, I'm going to learn it, I'm going to base my convictions on your word, I'm going to trust you, if nobody else in my family and nobody else in my friends goes along with it, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to be an Elijah. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to be counted for you. And you know what? One of these days we might see pastors being imprisoned, Christians being imprisoned, People being put to death. But you know what? That has always happened. That's always happened. It may happen again. Are we going to be willing to be counted if it happens to us? We'll see. We'll see.